Okay, so we are in a series on our side over here on the two letters that we have in the New Testament to the church in the city of Corinth. Uh, we're in part three, and we're trying to march through uh, at least the first letter. We'll see how far we get. We've got a lot of information about the city of Corinth. Uh, we've got things in the New Testament. We've got things that we found in the history books as I've said before, you can go and see the city today. We're doing a series on Wednesday nights on Zoom where we go in there and we're able to look at it. And, uh, you know, it helps to interpret the book uh, when you know so much about it. And I call the series Crazy Corinth because there was a lot of problems in this church. You, you had the good, the bad, and the ugly, as it were, uh, in this church. It was a melting pot of all kinds of different things. We've looked into the city and what the city was like at that time. And, you know, it, it helps us, gives us some insight as to why Paul writes some of the things that he does and so on. And we're trying to go through the first few chapters. Uh, last week, we talked about a church divided and how he's dealing with situations of division there. And uh, so today we're going to do a subject, really it's a couple of subjects that are somewhat sensitive. I call the message Sex, Lies, and Lawyers. And if you got the text yesterday, you knew this already, okay? You should read my texts. I might, I might, put, I might put surprises in there, you know, and say, anybody who reads this within the next five minutes and replies will get a gift certificate you know, on Sunday, I may put surprises in there, so you should read when your pastor messages you. But anyway, we're going to look at really chapter 5 and chapter 6 of uh, the first letter here. And these are, these are sensitive issues, and I will tell you right off the bat, um, you know, folks, you, you, you hear it from me a lot. I often try to drill into you over, over a given year, you know, why when you pick up your Bible, you can believe what you're reading. And I try to help you understand why you're not foolish to, to believe that these things happened and that, that, that what you're reading is, you know, if you interpret it at least, you know, semi-correctly, it, it happened. And I try to do that, and we call that field of study apologetics, and so I always try to do that. And I could give you, you know, manuscript evidence and inscriptions and archaeology and all of those things about uh, 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, but on these particular two subjects, folks, I don't need to do that because there's some things you're going to read in the scripture that you're going to know regardless of who wrote it. It probably won't even matter to you who wrote it. You're going to read it and you're going to say, oh, I know that that's true. And you're going to do that because you've experienced it. And when you look into something that's 2,000 years old, telling you things and you say, oh, I've lived that. I've lived that, I've experienced that. Whoever is writing this is writing it right to me because I'm in the very circumstance or I have been. Things in the Old Testament too, you'll pick up, you'll read a story, you'll read a Psalm and you'll say, it's right there, I understand, I relate to all of these things. So I can tell you from personal experience that, that these things that this author wrote happened. 
Uh, and there's, there are unsensitive issues here for sure, but this is what he was dealing with in the church of crazy Corinth. So there's really two broad issues if you look at these two chapters that he's going to address and he's going to address them head on. There's really two of them, okay? And again, I would challenge you if you're new to the Bible um, or you haven't been in the New Testament for a while, try and read through the letter of 1 Corinthians as a kind of an exercise, you know, as much as you can for as long as you can, three, four, five chapters at once, take a cup of tea, cup of coffee, and, and build that over, over the next little while as we're, as we're going through it. It will really help you because there's just snapshots of real life here. So two broad issues that he's got to deal with in this church. Number one is there was a situation of open, widely known, unrepentant sin that was happening in his church that he founded. Again, he's writing probably from the city of Ephesus around 54, 55, back to the church that he founded in the city of Corinth, 5051 is when he first visited Corinth. And he's got a situation there that must be dealt with. It's open, it's unrepentant sin right there in the church. And the second issue has to deal with how to handle disputes and conflicts. It's not, it's first four chapters, he's talking about divisions and, uh, um, you know, I follow this one and I follow this one and these kind of schisms that would happen. But here you're going to see it's different. He's, he's talking about how is a dispute settled? How are you handling conflict? And he's also going to deal with a situation, a very oof, graphic situation of unrepentant sin. Okay? So you say, oh, but this is a church. This should never happen in a church. It did. And it does. So thankfully, it doesn't happen all the time, and it's not uh, common, but it does happen. It did happen, and here's how he's going to try and deal with it, all right? So uh, fasten your seatbelts here. The, the first situation that he's going to tackle, this is in chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians, is we've got a, and he says it very bluntly, and he says there is a situation that has been reported. Probably this is from the people in Chloe's household. We met her last week and this unknown lady, but her maybe and her members of her household are telling Paul, you need to understand what's happening here. And thank God that they had the, the courage to do that. Uh, so here's a situation, perhaps reported by them, perhaps not. Uh, but here's how Paul terms it. He says, it is actually reported, 1 Corinthians 5, that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that even pagans don't tolerate. So just to give you help here, this term that we see translated in modern translation, sexual immorality, is two words. You've got one word in the, in the language of the New Testament there, and I've put it on, your, on the screen there. It's a word that sounds like porneia when you transliterate it. And you'll recognize this term this is where we get the, 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 the word pornography is derived from this. 
So he's saying there is a kind of porneia among you, and it's a kind that even pagans don't tolerate. Hmm. Now, Corinthian, the city of Corinth, had a, a awful reputation. If you were a Corinthian, they had this derogatory term. We learned this in the first message. Uh, you were a drunkard. You were an immoral person. So here he's saying there's something going on in your church that even, really, even Corinthians don't do. So he's going to say what it is. And in modern translation does a decent job. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. Yuck. So this is the man and his stepmother. Man sleeping with his father's wife. Presumably, his father is still married to the wife. So this is a very, Paul is hearing this, and he's saying this is being tolerated. Verse 2, and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? So he's very upset with them at their reaction to this apparently widely known situation happening in the church in Corinth. And it, I have not been able to figure out, uh, I, you know, we talked about a little bit on Wednesday night with the group, and they couldn't figure it out either, uh, as to why this church would be proud knowing this. I mean, Paul doesn't mention the name of the man, the stepmother, the father. Interesting, he doesn't mention the names, presumably because everybody knew about it. And he says, and you are proud. Why were they proud? I still am not sure that I know the answer. Uh, and I have, I've been in, in pastoral ministry for two decades and have run into multiple situations of, as, as he uses the term there, porneia, multiple situations, all kinds. I've seen one that was somewhat close to this in the same realm, but every single one, and I, I can recall dealing with many of them at the same time, myself and one of the pastors I worked with, I think we were dealing with about a dozen of them at the same time, okay? So much larger amount of people, of course, in the, in the assembly and so on. Uh, but uh, every single situation that I've run into in, in ministry, the, the, if, if it was known at all by the assembly, it certainly wasn't something that, that was, they were proud of. These things are always dealt with uh, privately as much as possible to to protect the assembly, to protect those involved, and so on. And you have to you have to really be careful. You have to sort of wear white gloves when you deal with situations like this in the modern church. So why were they proud? I've never seen it before where you have an assembly who says we know about this and we're proud of this, but here they were, and Paul is extremely upset. More so, it seems, at the posture of the Corinthian church. And yet they were proud. And so he's going to say, here's what you have to do about this situation. 
uh, even though I'm not there, he says, I'm with you in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. So, and remember, he's the one who sort of planted this church. He says, when you are assembled, in other words, when you are ecclesiad, uh, the, the word church is, is a word that means meeting. Church is not a Christian term, okay? We always think of church as something Christian. It's not. The word church in the language of the New Testament just means meeting. It's an ecclesia. But in the context of the, of the, the, the Bible, and of, especially of the New Testament, the church, the ecclesia, is Jesus' ecclesia. Jesus said, I will build my ecclesia, my meeting, my meeting. So Paul is saying, when you are assembled, this is Jesus' meeting. When you are assembled, and I am with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan. Wow. For the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Very harsh, very quickly mentioned here, but it does have a slice in it of redemption. He says, you are going to publicly put this man out of the ecclesia. You are going to do so somehow under my direction. He's the one who planted the church and under the authority of Jesus himself. Why would you do this? You hand him over to the adversary, to the enemy, to the tempter for the destruction of the flesh not the physical body, but that nature, that fallen nature within. Why? So that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. So in other words, let him, let him experience all of his stuff, and maybe he will, he will come back and be redeemed. So there's a, a, a slice of redemption in his, in his recommendation here. So it's a very harsh uh, uh, response to us, but I would remind you that this is exactly what Jesus had recommended. Matthew chapter 18, we talked about it a little bit last week, and this is how you deal with sin in the ecclesia. If your brother or your sister sins, you go and you point out their fault just between the two of you. And if they listen to you, you've won them over. Remember, you keep it private. And this is a sin issue here in Matthew 18. And then the circle starts to get larger. If they don't listen, you take two or three along. Remember the two or three, so that every matter may be established by the witness of two or three people. That's out of the Old Testament. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the ecclesia. The gathering, let the gathering know. The full assembly, let them know. Tell it to the ecclesia. And if they refuse to listen to the ecclesia, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. In other words, put them out. 
And then the famous verse that we often quote out of context, truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly I tell you that if two or three, see the two or three of you uh, on earth agree about anything you ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three gather in my name, there I am with them. The context here is church discipline. It's not, well, you get whatever you want where two or three ask in Jesus' name. No, the context is church discipline. When you get into a point where you have to confront a person who is in open, unrepentant sin, and you get to a certain point, remember, where two or three are gathered in my name, I'm with you. I'll be with you in that process of dealing with it because it is very difficult to do. Take it from me, I've been involved in situations like that multiple, multiple times, and it is very, very difficult to do. So I understand this passage as, hey, Jesus is going to be with you in this process. Do it right, and he will be with you. This is exactly what is happening in the church in Corinth. This thing has gotten to a point where the whole assembly knows. The whole assembly is proud. Nobody is saying this is wrong. Nobody is saying we have to do something about this. They seem to be proud of it. Uh, for what reason, we're not sure. Maybe there's a couple of things which I'll get to in a minute. But he says you've got to put him out. Precisely following, I think, what Jesus had said in Matthew 18. And then Paul is going to uh, give them some background as to sort of why they need to do it, some more theological background. But his basic point is the way of Jesus' uh, uh, meeting, his ecclesia, is not the Corinthian way. And here's your problem, Corinthians. You're, 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 you're new in Christ, but you've still got Corinth in your veins. You live there, you're geographically there, but you're out of there. You're in Christ, but you live there. Stop living as if it's in your veins. Because now you've got Christ in you, now you've got a new way of living, start living that way, even though you still live geographically in Corinth. You've got to do things the way of the ecclesia of Jesus and not the way of Corinth. You know, there's an old saying uh, when, the, when the children of Israel were being taken out of Egypt and they, and they wanted to go back. You know, God was giving them manna from, from heaven and taking care of them. And they were like, oh, we don't like it. We had it better in Egypt. And it was as if even though they were out of Egypt geographically, they still had Egypt inside of them. Well, here, the Corinthians are not out of Corinth geographically, but they still seem to have it inside of them. And they've got to live the new way, and this is why Paul is being so direct to them. And he gives them some interesting theological background, and he says, your boasting is not good. Remember, they were boasting about this. They're proud of this thing for some reason. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough, using yeast here as a metaphor for something bad. And he's saying, you got to get rid of that old yeast. Get Corinth out of you. Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. So get rid of the old 
and put the new unleavened batch, the bread without yeast. This is out of the Exodus story from the book of Exodus. Remember, they couldn't bake the bread. Uh, they couldn't wait for the yeast to rise in their haste to leave. And so it's un unleavened. It has no yeast in it. When the Jews celebrate Passover, they eat bread that is without yeast as a symbol of that. And here Paul's drawing on it, and he says, For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, obviously referring to the Passover, but not with the old, not with the bread leavened with malice and wickedness, not the Corinthian way, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Ah. So again, live new, live like that unleavened bread. For Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. We talk about this kind of thing at Easter time. So this is what he's trying to say to them. You've got to look at this situation. It's a dire situation. Why are you, why are you proud of this? There could be several reasons why. Uh, some people say that these folks had slipped into what's called antinomianism by the theologians it meant we're free we can we can uh, we can do what we want uh, we're free to do as we wish and because we're free therefore we can do this thing and you know this is a tolerated thing among us you will see paul uh, talk about this type of thing in first corinthians 6 uh, verse 12, I have the right to do anything, uh, you say. But he says, not everything is beneficial. Well, I have the right to do anything, they say. And Paul retorts back and he says, but I will not be mastered by everything. And then they say, food for the stomach and the stomach for food. And, uh, uh, but God will destroy them both. And Paul the body is not meant for, again, this term sexual immorality or porneia, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. You've got to take this seriously, he's saying, and this I have the right to do anything, I can do anything I want, is a false idea. Maybe that's why. Maybe they were just numb to it. Maybe they just had too much of, again, too much of Corinth in their veins. For whatever reason, he brings this this image up of the unleavened bread to again try and reinforce the point. You see the whole discipline process in Matthew chapter 18, and I call this sex lies and lawyers because there's lies that are happening here. And the lies of this congregation are really to themselves. First John chapter 1, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. We're lying to ourselves and the truth is not in us. So he's trying to say to them, wake up, wake up to this and start doing things the right way. And so this is the big first issue. But again, the whole thing revolves around, yes, you still live in the city, but you've got to live different even though you're in the city. You're with me so far? Okay, we made it through issue number one. Uh, and now we're going to get to issue number two, which is in chapter six. Now, what he'll do in chapter six is he'll talk about issue number two, and then he'll sort of jump back to issue number one, and he'll, he'll sort of toggle between the two of them. 
but still pretty easy to follow. So issue number two is trying to settle the conflicts, as he puts them, or disputes in the ecclesia. So you've got people, they're part of Jesus's meeting. Jesus said, I will build my ecclesia and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. It's my ecclesia. I'm the center of this ecclesia, this meeting. 2,000 years later, right in this movie theater, there's an ecclesia. There's people who gather in the name of Jesus. He's building his ecclesia 2,000 years later. Well, what happens when you have conflicts? What happens when you have disputes within the ecclesia? How do you deal with them? And there, it's not necessarily a, the, a sin thing here because he's dealing with open sin in chapter 5. But in chapter 6, he's talking about disputes. This is something different. So it's not necessarily gone to a place of sin. It's not necessarily gone to a place of transgression. But it's when people have disputes and conflicts with one another. You say, oh, that should never happen in a church. Folks, you're human. Happens all the time. The question is, how do people resolve conflict? How many of you are married in this room or have been married? You ever have any conflicts with your spouse? Never. Okay, now you're all lying, right? So you have conflicts, yes? And you know as well as I do that the trick of marriage is, ah, how do you resolve conflict? How do you do it in a healthy way? And a, and a lot of couples are completely without skill in this area, and they have no ability to resolve conflict. So you, if you have been married for a while, you know, hey, you learn how to do that, and, and you grow together, understanding each other, and you develop a whatever system that works for you to resolve conflict. Well, same thing can happen in a spiritual family. So how do you do this? And how they were doing it, was off the charts. So chapter 6, verse 1. If any of you has a dispute with another, and again, this is within the ecclesia, do you dare to take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of the Lord's people? Wow. Or do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, somehow in the end times eschatological thing he's drawing on here, if you are to judge the world at some point in the future, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know we will judge angels? Again, in an eschatological sense, in the future he's talking about, how much more the things of this life? So, if you have disputes about such matters, and different translations say different things here, do you ask for a ruling from those whose way of life is scorned in the church? In other words, you are taking your dispute and you are going into a, a non-believing courtroom to settle your dispute with someone in Jesus's ecclesia? And he is very, very disturbed by this behavior. Basically, a Christian taking another Christian to court. There's a dispute. There's a conflict. And this is their method of resolution. Take them to court. 
And, and he says, you know, instead, one brother takes another to court, and this in front of unbelievers. Uh, I say this to shame you, he says. Is it possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers, verse 6, but instead one brother takes another to court, and this in front of unbelievers. He's very, very irritated by this, very disturbed by this behavior. You say, no, this would never happen in a church context, never. Oh, folks, I mean, I could keep you here for the rest of the day telling you stories of what I have experienced in this realm. And at the end of the day, you would say one of three things. Pastor, I need a drink. <laughs> or you might say, Pastor, I don't know whether to laugh or cry. Or you might say, Pastor, I, I don't think I can ever go into a church again <laughs> based on what you just told me. Folks, I have signed non-disclosure agreements. I have sat in mediation sessions, Christian against Christian, people part of the same church in sharp and bitter dispute with one another to the point where there was legal action that was taken. And I can tell you, whoever wrote this down knows what they're talking about because I've lived it and seen it and experienced it. I will never forget the time that I had already been uh, in, I'll be very vague here intentionally with no names, no church names. Uh, I had already been, had one experience with the, with the uh, there was a dispute and there was a mediation session that, that I attended. And um, mediation is really interesting. You know, you, you, you sit in a room and you've got one person over here who's upset at this other person over here. I'm going to be very vague with you, uh, but you'll get the broad strokes. And the mediator, you know, is, and you've got two Christians here. And the mediator over here, they're not a Christian at all. And the mediator says to the party that's offended, well, you tell your story. They tell their story. And the mediator says, be quiet. And then the mediator says to the other one, you tell your story. Tell their story. And then the mediator says, be quiet. And then the mediator says, okay, you stay here. You're the offended party. You stay here. And you're the other side. Get out of here. Go into this other room. I'll be with you in a minute. And then the mediator talks to the, the one side and says, what do you want? And the person says, well, I want money. I want this. I want this. I want this. And then they go to the other side, go to the other room. And they say, well, this is what the person wants. What are you willing to give them? As well, we don't want to give them this, we don't want to give them that. We, we, the, 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 and it's back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And the mediator is bouncing, trying to get a deal on the table. Why do they want to do that? Because they want to keep the situation out of an actual courtroom. Because stepping into a courtroom is extremely expensive. And so they go back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And then they say, hey, we've got a deal here. This one says, I'll give you this. This one says, I'll take it. All right, let's draft it up, let's sign it, boom, and it's done. Uh, I remember going through that in one particular situation, and wow, I mean, my hair's getting gray here, you see? Those of you who have known me for a few years, it's a little more gray than it should be, probably, because of those things. 
And so I remember that time, and then I remember maybe a year, maybe two years later, another situation. Christian, Christian against the Christian. Go back to the same place, same building. Sit down in the room. One person tells their side of the same process. Same mediator. Same person. She looks at me. She says, oh, you again. Oh, and Paul's writing to the Corinthian church just stuck me like a knife. And I thought, what a, this is awful. What an awful witness to this person. This is what she thinks of the church. You guys are really good fighting with one another. You're really, really good at disputes, aren't you? And this person paid, you know, they're paid to keep those, to try and find a solution to those disputes to keep them out of a courtroom. And here she is dealing with the same, oh, you again. What's her impression of what the church is about? Oh, well, a bunch of people who really are angry at each other and like to fight with each other and can't resolve their disputes themselves. And this is what Paul is saying. He's saying, you can't fix your dispute. You, of all people, you're part of Jesus' ecclesia. You can't fix your dispute. Excuse me. But the ecclesia of Jesus are supposed to be the experts in conflict resolution. We're supposed to be the experts because our whole faith is built on conflict resolution. Do you realize that? Maybe some of you never thought of that. We have a deep conflict with God. We're born in conflict with God. And our conflict is not just a dispute. Our conflict is a sin thing. So we're born that way. We have a nature within us that is against him. We are by nature at war with God, in conflict with God. This is not the popular view of the human condition, but this is the Bible view of the human condition. We're born in conflict with God. So how is the conflict resolved? And and, and we're the ones who are the, are the guilty party. It's God who has been offended in this conflict. It's not us. It's God who has been offended. And this will change your life just if you understand this uh, even snippet of this message. So often, we're the ones who complain to God. God, why did you do this to me? Why did you do this to me? Why did you do this to me? Why did you allow this to happen? Why did you do this? You did this, you did this, you allowed this, you allowed this, you allowed this. You have hurt me, God. The Bible has the reverse picture. We have hurt him. He's the offended party. We broke his heart. We broke his law. We broke his code, which he put in place to protect us, to give us joy. He put that there, but we broke it. We cross the line all the time. It's in our nature to do this. And so how does God, who is the offended party, solve the problem of conflict? He says, well, I'll solve the problem of conflict myself. They owe me their lives. It's okay. They don't have to pay. I'll pay. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus our Lord. So the punishment that we owe God 
is our lives. And God says, I'll pay it. I'll pay it for them. Where do you find anywhere where the offended party pays the fine that the offender owes? You don't find that anywhere. That is a very radical example of love. Somebody offends you and you pay the price that they owe you? This is bizarre. We are instinctively, we do not understand that. We're not built that way. We instinctively want revenge. And so God says, I will pay the price that they owe me. Wow, that is a very radical expression of love. And so Paul says to these people, with that in mind, you're part of the ecclesia and you can't solve this conflict. You bring it before the unbelieving court for a ruling. Oh, you again. And I went through, boy, in a period of, I'd say, five or six years. Oh, my goodness. Probably three cases back to back to back uh, involving legal action. Probably went through $100,000 of legal fees to keep things out of court. Signed non-disclosure agreements and all this stuff. Why? Because we couldn't handle our disputes and here's this 2,000-year-old letter saying you have to have a mechanism of all people to fix it. Verse 7, the very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you've been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Who was wronged and cheated unjustly? Jesus himself. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong. So now it gets to a point where it's no longer a dispute. Now you're throwing stones at each other. Now you're attacking one another. Now you're sinning against each other. And I've seen that too, where the dispute gets so bad that people start doing things and saying things that they're off the deep end. Morally speaking, they've crossed the line. And now they're, they are becoming what they, what they despise because they're so angry. Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers and your sisters. And then he says, do you not know that wrongdoers or the cheaters will not inherit the kingdom of God? So when you get to that point and you start doing that, and now you cross the line, and now you're, don't you know that that's not, that's the old way. That's the old way. There you go again. Don't be deceived. You can't live that way and inherit the kingdom of God. And now he mentions a famous, famous verse that is so controversial today. Neither the, the, the sexually immoral or the pornea people, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, and here's the one that bothers people so much today, nor men who have sex with men, he just puts it right out there. This is a better way to translate the, the, the word that's used there. Nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor the drunkards, nor the slanderers or swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that's what some of you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. In other words, there's new blood in your veins. It's not the Corinthian way anymore. It's Jesus' way. Start living that way. Don't, 
do this thing where you're taking your brother and your sister into a courtroom. Don't do this. This is the old way. Do things the new way. And again, Jesus has a way to do this, again, from the Gospels. And you see this, and I think Paul probably has this in his mind as he's writing this. This is out of the Beatitudes, Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount. If you are offering your gift at the altar and you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, there's a dispute, there's a conflict. Maybe it's not sin. It's a dispute or a conflict, though. Your brother, your sister has something against you, and you are going to God with your offering. You're going to worship God. Stop. Leave your gift in fr there in front of the altar. Don't, in other words, don't start to worship yet. Don't bring your gift to God. First, go and be reconciled to your brother, your sister, who's offended by you, and then come offer your gift. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Puts, he puts the onus on the person who knows that someone else is offended by them. He says, you go to that person who's offended by you. In other words, get your stuff right with people in the ecclesia before you come to me. Because what you do this way with people has a, it reflects on what you do with me. Don't come to me and worship me if you've still got problems with the people in the ecclesia. Make it right with the people in the ecclesia and then come worship me. That's a first priority. And if you're the one who knows that the person's offended by you, you may not be offended by the person, but the person's offended by you. Well, you, by golly, you go and make it right with that person. After all, you're coming to worship God, aren't you? And didn't God reconcile you to him? When you were his enemy and you offended him, oh my goodness, the way of Jesus, the way of Jesus's church is quite different than the way of the world. Yes, very different, very opposite. You have to be very courageous to do this kind of thing. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Happened back then. Do it while you're still together on the way. Don't even, get, don't even go into that courtroom. Settle it while you're on the way to the courtroom. Or your adversary may hand you over to the judge. And the judge may hand you over to the officer. And you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you've paid the last penny. When people get that mad, folk, when they get that angry, they're out for blood. They're out for keeps. And he's saying, no, not in my church, you don't do that. Not in the way of Jesus, you don't do that. Settle your matters quickly. Find a way. Go to the person who's offended by you. Make it right, make it right, make it right. Because we are supposed to be different if we claim to be followers of Jesus. Wow. And those are the two, <laughs> the two on fire issues that Paul has to deal with there, 1 Corinthians Chapter 5, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Would you stand with me? And uh, musicians, if you want to come and play in the background at your leisure, you can do so. I'm not sure how to apply this. Uh, it, there are so many situations, I think, folks, in our lives that uh, touch these, these issues, you know. Um, uh, just when we walked into to the building this morning, the, the, the manager of the theater, bless her, was, was uh, trying with all of her might 
you know, uh, the, uh, on the screen out in front of the of the of the theater. At times, they have movies that play here that are, you know, they're 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 difficult to look at some of the imagery, shall we say? And she was trying, bless her heart, to turn off that TV. I don't want the Christians to come in and see, you know, this kind of image or whatever. It's very unchristian and and all of that. She couldn't turn it off. Couldn't turn it off. Finally, we found a way to turn it off. So that's why you look because hey, it's black. There's what what movie's playing? Well, we don't want you to know. So we we found a way to do that. And you know the the influence, folks, of this whole pornea thing in our culture is just uh, it's absolutely everywhere. I think of young people, teenagers, and young adults, and they are inundated with with. Corinth, live the Corinthian way, and they've got to live the Jesus way, but the Corinthian way is constantly in front of them, the music that they listen to, and some of you young people who might be in the room, I don't know, but I, 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 I follow the stuff that you listen to, some of you, and my goodness, that is, that is toxic for your soul. Be careful what you're listening to. Be careful what you're watching. All of those things, a separate sermon unto itself. But the, the influence is so strong. And folks, like, we have to get to a point where we're so different as a church community that people look and they say, wow, that's the opposite of what I expected. That's the opposite of what is normally done when people are mad at each other. Why are they so different? Why are they that way? They must have the mark of Jesus on them, you see. And that's the responsibility that the church has. May God help us. Father, I pray for all of us who are here gathered in this room, people who are online. Lord, especially in these times when, when if we profess the name of Jesus, we are being watched so closely. There's so much criticism, uh, so much anger that is levied toward people who just want to serve you. Uh, Lord, may we shine brightly with the spirit of Jesus within us. Uh, God, I think of people who uh, they, they have, they are coming out of, uh, of a pornea world and uh, coming out of maybe a Corinthian situation and trying to learn to live new. Would you grant people strength to do that? I pray for people who there's disputes, there's conflicts, there's quarrels. Maybe they've been through these kinds of things and have been hurt and don't know how to fix it and don't know how to heal, don't know how to resolve. Oh God, may we learn from the master today. Would you give us the grace to do so? We pray together in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you today. Remember, if you've got kids in screen 11 to pick them up and your income tax receipts are ready at the desk. Have a great Sunday, everybody.